Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they'd do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollock. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what you can do. I'm on with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hello, Lila. Hi, Kelly. How are you? Uh, you know, it's it's cold in Chicago, uh, and that makes me want to just hunker down and do nothing, but we got to keep out there and do stuff. I mean, it's raining in LA, so I mean, we're really having an exciting time out here weather-wise. <laughs> um, in any case, we are really excited today to talk about something that actually was one of the first things that we raised on this podcast. It was it was sort of central to our first episode, which was just the two of us, which was about how media and uh, messaging tactics fit into the activist handbook. And so we have David Fenton on today, who is the author of the Activist Media Handbook, uh, to discuss not only his activist journey, but also what he can share with us about what's useful to know as an activist when you're thinking about how to promote your cause, message your cause, and deal with media. So thanks so much for being here, David. It's a pleasure. And it's beautiful here in Berkeley today. So, so lucky and also so rare. It's usually, it's usually the other way around. Usually LA is the one with the, with the sunny day. Um, I would love if we could just start off with you telling the listeners just a little bit about your kind of journey, your career, uh, cause it's, it's quite a, it's quite a sweep and I'm, I feel like you will maybe do a better job of summarizing it than I will. So can you talk a little bit about your uh, background as both an activist and also professionally? I mean, it's, they're sort of connected. So. Yeah, there's never been a separation. I've been very fortunate. I've, I've only been an activist in my career and the business I founded was an activist business. So I'm, I'm very fortunate in that regard and I never had us to separate those things. So I, uh, I'm a child of the late 1960s and I was born in 1952. And in the late 60s, uh, I dropped out of high school to be a photojournalist, a radical photojournalist for a radical underground anti-war news service called Liberation News Service based in New York City, which served the countercultural underground anti-war newspapers of the time. And there were hundreds of them all around the country. And so uh, my mother was really upset that I dropped out of high school, but she started to accept me when uh, she saw my photographs were being printed in the New York Times with my name under them and she could show her friends. So that helped some. But my education really uh, happened taking photographs of all the anti-war demonstrations and the leaders of the movement and the civil rights movement and uh, people from SDS, Students for Democratic Society and the Yippies and the Weather Underground and the Black Panthers. This is what I was exposed to. And, you know, I was 16, 17, 18 years old when I was working as a photographer. So I had a a radical education from a radical news service, which had been uh, started by some people who had formerly been 
Washington Post uh, journalists who were upset with their coverage of the Vietnam War and so started their own news service. So that's how I got started. And, um, you know, I was tear gassed a lot. I had to have a helmet and a gas mask with me wherever I went to take photos. The perk was I got to be on the stage and photograph the great musicians of the time. So in my book, you'll see pictures of Janis Joplin, and the Rolling Stones and John Lennon and Yoko Ono and the Grateful Dead. And so that was a lot of fun, uh, you know, because the music was so great back then. And it was also a vehicle for social change messaging, uh, at, which it is much less today. And it was a great unifying force uh, at that time for activism. So, so then I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, not to go to school. I never went to college but to uh, join a commune of hippie political organizers who, and the leader of this group was in prison at the time, uh, 10 years for two marijuana joints. And uh, he made his case a constitutional challenge to the marijuana laws of the state of Michigan for wrongly classifying cannabis as an addictive narcotic, like the idiotic federal laws still do. And his case was a real cause celebre. And that was the first time I'd started doing activist public relations. And I got some help because John Lennon and Yoko Ono came and played a benefit concert for this guy. And the Beatles had just broken up. So this was a very big deal in Michigan. And it was a great political lesson because the day after the concert, the Michigan Supreme Court reversed its previous decision, let this guy Sinclair out on bond and overturned the state's marijuana laws as unconstitutional. And I said, wow, this rock and roll communications thing is kind of powerful. So that was the beginning of my uh, public relations career. And when Sinclair got out, we uh, started a third political party in Ann Arbor called the Human Rights Party. And in 1972, we won control of the Ann Arbor City Council. So our first act was to pay back the marijuana dealers who had financed the campaign by making the sale and possession of cannabis a $5 parking ticket in Ann Arbor. And to celebrate that, we started a thing called the Hash Bash, which still exists, where people go on 420 and get high on the campus. So, uh, so that was the origin of my activism. And you know, we also opened free medical clinics and free daycare centers with the city's money, and it was it was a fascinating, high energy uh, experience. So, to make a long story a little bit short, I I then went back to New York. And I went to work at Rolling Stone magazine uh, as their director of public relations when Rolling Stone was doing a lot of serious investigative political news stories. And that's how I started uh, getting to know people in the major media by promoting the stories in Rolling Stone about how, for example, Israel got its nuclear weapons, how the CIA had infiltrated and had reporters on the staff of all the major US newspapers, a story by Carl Bernstein that a lot of people have forgotten. Um, and then I thought that the, oh, and at Rolling Stone, I uh, also uh, produced the so-called No Nukes concerts at Madison Square Garden in 1979 with Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Ray, Carly Simon, and the Doobie Brothers, Chaka Khan. And we uh, uh, did these series of concerts uh, against nuclear energy and made a record and a motion picture. And so then I decided there should be a PR firm uh, to 
represent progressive causes and that wouldn't lie for money. And I started my firm Fenton in 1982. So that's kind of my origin story. Yeah. So I, I want to ask uh, most, maybe all of the people we've had on already, either the advocacy work they do is not part of their day job or they work sort of in government or in a nonprofit. And Fenton is a for-profit company. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the decision to do that and how you're able to do sort of for-profit work, but still make it part of the, the overall mission that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, well, I was always mission driven. And and by the way, I'm I I sold Fenton Communications. I don't I'm not involved in it anymore. It's doing very well. It's doing 100% progressive work and and I sold it primarily so I could work on climate change communication because you know, when you know t too much about that subject as I do, it's hard to think about anything else. Um but yeah, the the people thought I was crazy to start a a, a firm to do this you know, wondering who would pay us to do this work. And it was kind of crazy, but we got a lot of philanthropic support. Um, and some of our earliest supporters were members of the Rockefeller family who supported our work uh, against the nuclear arms race and against apartheid in South Africa um, and on uh, uh, pesticides and foods and, and other issues. So, and, and I would say that there are it there are some advantages to the for-profit model and there are some problems with the nonprofit model neither are perfect i think uh, you know as we all know you know bureaucracy is uh, always uh, the enemy in any context and it is true that it's uh, it happens in business but it happens less in business it happens more in government and nonprofits you know at our firm if we didn't call people back and do our work people wouldn't pay us so that tends to focus your productivity and your mind i'm not saying that it's always the best approach but you know i think in nonprofits the the antipathy to paying people bonuses, for example, or paying people incentive pay, um, which is not universal in nonprofits, but is pretty common. I think that's a mistake, uh, as is not paying people enough so they can remain in activist careers. And, you know, I, I, I write in my book that my experience is that in many situations, if you pay people more at a nonprofit, you can attract better talent. And so you can have fewer people and get just as much done. And to some people, this is a heretical view, but this is what I've experienced. This is actually something that we've also spoken about a bit on the podcast. Um, and it's something that I also cover in my book because I chose not to make activism my career in part because people don't realize how little it pays most of the time or advocacy can pay, you know, pay so little. So I think that that's like a, an important point. There are several threads I want to pick up on here. Um, so I'm just going to go with one and I may veer back. I want to talk a little bit about when it comes to PR and messaging, what you can and can't do with money. So what does money buy and what does it not buy? What you know, what can you offer either clients or, or you know, an, an effort that you're involved in yourself with fundraising and money and what what doesn't doesn't come from money you know like what 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 do you just need ideas for well first you always need ideas <laughs> and and um 
you know, I would say that, um, you know, I talk about uh, rules of communications that are based on cognitive science. And uh, a lot of progressives have trouble with these rules. And, and I think they come first. So the first rule is that the brain only learns from the repetition of simple messages only the repetition of simple messages. And in the progressive community, don't we love complexity? And don't we hate repeating ourselves? So we tend to dislike what works. And we also often tend to dislike the very idea of selling ideas. We have often uh, what the linguist George Lakoff calls the enlightenment fallacy that you know a great idea should sell itself because it's just so frigging brilliant. And so this is uh, largely the result of people in our community coming from the humanities, the sciences, and the law, where you're rewarded for complexity, you're never rewarded for repetition, and where you're taught that the brilliance of the Enlightenment idea is what counts. Now, on the right, a lot of those people go to business school, and they study marketing science and cognitive science, and they have to learn how to sell products and services to advance their careers, many of them. So they have a different orientation. And so, you know, I'm trying to make the case that we have to practice the modern techniques of mask persuasion and communication using the truth, of course. Simplifying is not distorting if you do it properly and ethically. But we have to use these principles or they're just going to beat us. And we don't want that. We want to win. So, for example, on climate change, and I'll get to your question about money in a, in a second. The language of the climate movement is proven not to work in the uh, message testing and data testing. Like, you know, the, the, the public doesn't know what net zero is. It barely knows what carbon is. Um, and But if you say the word pollution, everybody knows what it is, and nobody will defend it. So, so this has to do with what linguists teach us, which is as you're exposed to language over your lifetime, you develop mental circuits from that language exposure. They're called frames. So when I say the word net zero, I'm not activating any existing mental circuitry or framing. When I say pollution, everybody instantly knows what I mean because that's a circuit. So that's the way we need to practice communications. And I outline other basic principles, of course, in my book. Now, as to money, Yes, in today's fractured, complex media environment, because public opinion only changes by people receiving simple messages with a great deal of repetition, a massive amount of repetition, it is often hard to achieve that amount of repetition without buying some of it. So, for example, you know, your organizations post on social media and they may have a certain following, but it's rarely enough to make a difference. So having a budget to boost those posts on social media at particular target audiences or even individuals is very, very important. So I do think that uh, there's a tendency in the progressive world of as organizational budgets increase, people just hire more people. And I don't recommend that. Uh, I think that a modern organization needs to be spending a percentage of its budget that's significant 
to guarantee visibility because visibility is power. So if we only hire people to do more policy and science work, we're not going to win. So I, I want to ask, you talk about a lot of people that you've known in the book. Uh, and of course, you talk a lot about Abby Hoffman and uh, sort of the, the charisma and the ability he had to, to think creatively and capture imagination, you know, contrasted with someone like Al Gore, who has great ideas, but maybe isn't able to sort of capture people in the same way. What are some of the, the sort of qualities, the, the things you see in the people who are able to shape the conversation, get people talking? Like, what, what is it about those people and what can we do to sort of emulate that if we're trying to, to, to get a crowd, uh, you know, on our side? Well, first of all, do you think your audience knows who Abby Hoffman was? <laughs> I, you know, our audience might, but perhaps not. <laughs> That's, it depends on whether our audience is more than like our parents who definitely right, know right, who right, Abby right. Hoffman is. Yeah, because I find that young people don't know who he was until I say, have you seen the trial of the Chicago 7 film on Netflix? And then a lot of people say, oh, yeah, that's the guy that Sasha Baron Cohen played. That's Abby. Yeah, I miss Abby every day, frankly. Abby was a genius. He was really brave. And he was the funniest person I have ever met. And he used humor to get the media to cover all kinds of issues and activities and demonstrations. I mean, you know, Abby had the entire press corps cover his attempt that he announced to levitate the Pentagon against the war and the whole media went you know along with thousands of other people and they joined hands and you know they levitated the pentagon <laughs> you know abby's uh, one of he did so many fun protests and one of my favorites is he went to the visitors gallery above the new york stock exchange in i think 1967 and started throwing dollar bills down on the trading floor and sure enough all stock trading stopped while the traders you know uh, uh, hustled to pick up the dollar bills and so abby made quite a statement and then they put a glass wall up on the visitor gallery so when you go today you can't throw dollar bills down on them um, and abby was very uh, keenly aware that your myth is as important as your reality and i talk about this in my book and by myth i don't mean falsehood and you know organizations need to pay more attention to how they're perceived, not just to what they do, because those are not the same things. And I would say that's a main quality that, that, that works in great communicators. You know, they're, they're, they use simple messages, they're lively, they're appealing, they're somebody that you want to have a beer with. Um, they're, uh, uh, the good ones are funny some of the time. I mean, it's no accident that you know, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart was consistently voted the most trusted news program in America year after year after year. So humor is very important. You know, I love Al Gore, but, uh, you know, he's certainly not the funniest person on earth. <laughs> you could say that. But look, he's done so much good in bringing the climate issue to people's attention. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, we need more voices on it now, but, you know, we all owe him a big debt for what he did. But really, it comes down to these basic communication rules, simple, repetitive, uh, touching existing mental frames and circuits, using symbolism, 
very important thing to do. That's another mental frame. In my book, I talk about a bunch of episodes where we used uh, and changed symbols uh, to get a great deal of attention. And um, so, you know, these are some of the basic qualities in doing good communications. And and it helps to, to think it's important because, uh, you know, people can sense it. You know, I remember when I thought Al Gore lost the election, it was during a debate with George W. Bush. And they asked uh, the both of them about taxes. And Bush said, I trust the American people to spend their own money. And every time they asked him about this, he kept saying the same thing. I trust the American people to spend their own money. So that's simple repetitive messaging. And Al would be, well, I supported HBX, blah, 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 this bill and this code, and it would do this. And he was just wonk, 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 wonk. And I, oh my God, we're going to lose. Although it was close. I think this is something that we also have talked about with a few guests, which is sort of the inherent tension between embracing what is theatrical about advocacy and, you know, and, and sort of considering the sort of like information, the most valuable piece that you can share with audiences. And I want, I mean, this is something that I feel like I read steal this book when I was 16, because my parents are like sixties era people and it was on uh-huh. the bookshelf. Um, and it, I think that was really the first. That's Abby's book. Right? That's Abby's book. Yeah. That was really the first time that I was presented with this idea that like good activism can be theater. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether that's something that you have, you know, in in the clients that you've worked with and the work that you've done, if that's a tension that has presented itself and how you've kind of worked around this tendency with, you know, serious political minds to want to think of themselves as above the, the theater of advocacy. Yes, and to be so literal. Yeah. You know, this is another problem on the left. Everybody wants, you know, everything to uh, be all encompassing and detailed and perfect in every respect before you utter it. You know, uh, I mean, a small example of this is uh, we did a campaign in the 1990s uh, to save swordfish from extinction. They were going extinct. We were only catching baby swordfish, too young to reproduce. The fish was about to crash. And we went and got the nation's leading chefs to come out publicly and say they would not serve swordfish at all until the government protected the spawning and nursing areas for the fish. And then cruise lines, airlines, hotel chains, restaurant chains all joined in and refused to serve swordfish. And swordfish were in danger all over the world, but the the problem was particularly acute in the North Atlantic. So we were trying to figure out what to call the campaign. We didn't want to call it boycott swordfish. That's just so boring. And we weren't sure we could pull that off. So uh, a very talented woman on our staff, uh, Kristen Grimm, who now runs her own PR firm called Spitfire, uh, she came up with this name, Give Swordfish a Break. I thought that was great. So, But the marine scientists at the Natural Resources Defense Council objected strenuously to that name. They said, no, no, you can't call it Give Swordfish a Break. I'm like, how come? They said, oh, no, you have to call it Give North American Swordfish a Break. And we're like, come on. You know, and Kristen had a great term for this. She called it literal sclerosis. <laughs> so luckily we prevailed and the you know, the easier to say and remember name prevailed. But this is a big problem. You know, people, uh, uh, 
you know, you, you can imagine I've had to edit uh, advertising with policy people. And it's a constant struggle to make it shorter. They're constantly trying to make it longer. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, and it's particularly hard with lawyers, uh, usually. So yeah, it is a constant tension. But again, the brain only learns from the repetition of simple messages. So do you want people to learn something or do you want to be right? So you mentioned you started as a, a photojournalist, and of course you've talked about the importance of symbols. I wonder if you could just talk in general about the importance of graphics and graphic design in getting messages across. Uh, you know, I see a lot of uh, stuff on Twitter from even campaigns and stuff that is just ugly, frankly. <laughs> you know, I I, uh, I want to sort of get across to people the importance of sort of actually investing in the graphics that you're putting forward. Yeah. Also, remember your audience exists in a contemporary media environment and they're being exposed often and usually to pretty high standards of visual identity. So if you look, you know, like, a, a, you know, a bunch of wonky academics who don't know what they're doing, they're going to pay less attention to you, just like they'll pay less attention to you if you're overly serious or condescending or using you know, overly complex uh, and wonky language. So of course, images are part of how the brain learns and it's part of your identity. So of course it should be contemporary and clean and compelling. Absolutely, it's very important. I think also circling back around to, you know, you talking about the role that music and musicians played in the early advocacy efforts that you were involved in, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about find how to find high profile advocates for the issues that you're working on. Like how do communities that, you know, are are working on either local causes or, you know, larger communities working on national causes approach high profile advocates, think about who would be a good high profile advocate for their cause um, and make best use of their visibility? Well, it's not an easy thing. Of course, it helps if you have connections and networks. Uh, you can tweet at celebrities and sometimes they'll come back at you because you know, a lot of them are looking for good things to be involved in. There is a, There are a few companies that connect causes and uh, companies with celebrities that you can find online. I, I think one's called Celebrity Service. So there are ways to do it. Um, you know, a number of the philanthropic sources of funding for these organizations have celebrity connections. And, you know, celebrity has a, a, a more expanded meaning today. I, you know, I like to use the word influencer because you're not a traditional celebrity if you're a big YouTube or Instagram influencer, but you have a lot of reach and you certainly can uh, reach out to those people. It's very important because again, the, the name of the game here is delivering messages with a lot of repetition. So people that have large social media followings can give you a lot of repetition and can be very helpful. You know, I did this campaign uh, in uh, 2012 for Yoko Ono to stop fracking in New York State. And, and we did stop at New York's one of only two states to ban the, the fracking, which, you know, whatever the gas companies tell you really does poison a significant amount of water supplies. Those wells leak and they can't fix them. And, you know, they just lie about it, of course. So uh, Yoko uh, uh, 
got involved in this along with an existing grassroots movement that was very powerful but the two the celebrities getting together with the grassroots movement that became irresistible to governor cuomo and he eventually agreed to ban fracking but one of the, my favorite moments of that campaign is yogo got in touch with lady gaga who at the time i think had 80 million twitter followers and got Lady Gaga to tweet out, call Governor Cuomo today and tell him to stop fracking. And no one in the governor's office could make a phone call all day. So yeah, that kind of stuff can be very helpful, of course. So uh, we could probably keep asking you questions forever, but I think people should just go buy the activist media handbook. So how can they do that? Uh, well, you know, there's always Monopoly. Amazon has it available. <laughs> they can do it through my website, uh, davidfentonactivist.com, davidfentonactivist.com, uh, or, uh, you know, a bunch of independent bookstores are stocking it, so you can find it. Excellent. Thanks so much for being here, and I'm eager to uh, hear what our audience thinks of your book. It kind of, it encompasses so many of the things that have been themes running through like a lot of our episodes. So I think it would be really relevant to anyone who's a regular listener of this podcast. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCanIDoPod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.